You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. All of my plots are rooted usually in the commonplace and randomness. And that, of course, is what's so frightening because we'd rather think it's a a Dean Koontz or Stephen King type monster out there who's very clever and supernatural. Uh, Somehow that would make us feel a little more immune if we knew it wasn't as commonplace as the person who pumped gas for you. Crime fiction author Patricia Cornwell. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, many authors, maybe most authors, labor in obscurity for months or even years before hitting it big with a major bestseller. But Patricia Cornwell hit it big with her very first book in 1990 called Postmortem. And in the three decades since then, she has sold over 100 million books. Her popular series of books feature a medical examiner named Dr. K. Scarpetta, who's based loosely on a real-life medical examiner for whom Cornwell worked in the 1980s. Now, I first interviewed Patricia Cornwell when her first book came out in 1990, that one called Postmortem. This interview that you're about to hear is the second one that we did, about a year later when her new book, Body of Evidence, had just been published, and she was still getting used to the idea that she was now a major author. So here now, from 1991, Patricia Cornwell. Have you been surprised at the success of your first book, now your, the, the rave reviews that this one is getting? Yes, um, Bill, I have been. It's, uh, I, was, I thought Postmortem was a good book, and I thought Body of Evidence was a good book, but the publishing industry is a strange beast, um, and the marketplace is very capricious. You never know what's going to happen. There's a little bit of the lottery involved, and literally these books have just gone up like a rocket, and my life has changed dramatically as a result of that. I mean, I'm much busier. It's a full-time career now. Financially, uh, you know, the, the picture has changed pretty dramatically, which every author hopes will happen. Not for the worse, I would imagine. Oh, no, no, not, not at all. It's, um, it, that's, been what, that's been rather astonishing as well. I, just, I had no idea at this time a year ago that things would go as they have. And, and, and of course, uh, part of that is I, I was quite surprised and, and thrilled when, you know, Postmortem won the John Creasy Award, which is for best first crime novel in Great Britain, and it's very difficult for an American to get that. And then it's also been nominated for the Edgar for the same thing in the United States. Uh, I don't know if it will win it. It's one of five finalists I'll find out the end of April. But boy, I mean, when you consider just the sheer number of books like this, I mean, crime, detective, right. mystery, murder, to pick out one or two that are the best of that genre, even even best among, you know, classified even further best first one, there's so many to choose from. This yes, is, I mean, you've, thousands, you've, I guess, probably. You've risen to the top of the heap very fast. I have. It's been astonishing. In fact, uh, my literary agent at this point is, is almost trying to put the brakes on a little bit because the level of expectation in New York has gotten so high that he is, and he thinks long term for me, which is, it's okay, you know, we're not going to push this too far in terms of, you know, selling, you know, future books and what have you. We're going to be a little bit cautious because you're in this for the long haul. And what can happen to authors is if you have this impression out there that you're a hot ticket um, and everybody's kind of fighting over you. You can almost shoot yourself in the foot because if if you go too far with that and maybe too much money is paid and it's not feasible for it to be earned out on your next books, so the next thing that happens is, oh, well, you know, we took a bath or she didn't do as well as we thought. And, and so you have to we're, – we're handling it fairly reasonably, I think, but it's it's also quite exciting. I, somebody, Amy Tan told me that somebody had once asked her, they said, how does it feel to have written your best book first? 
Oh, what? that's a terrible question. <laughs> yeah. See, it, it, that's a little bit of the syndrome I'm going through because of what's happened to postmortem. Um, when you have the awards that it is getting, um, how likely is that 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 will ever happen to me again? It might not that I'll ever produce another novel that will get those kind of acclaims or rewards not only in Great Britain but also in the United States. It might happen again. Then again, it might not. So what do you have to do to yourself psychologically? Do you have to just say, I'm going to treat this as if this were my very first piece of published work and I'm just going to do the best I can and hope for the best? i tell you what I do, Bill, is when I sit down at my computer and start working on another novel, I try to block all of it out. I just focus on that one book. I don't think about body of evidence, the second one. I don't think of postmortem, the first one. It's like I never even wrote those. Uh, or the third one, which is at Scribner's right now. It's called All That Remains, but it won't be out for a while. Um, I just block it all out because you can get paralyzed if, if you concentrate on it too much. And philosophically, the way I look at it, if I had to choose, I would rather that my first book did that well than to have it be my fifth one because it's given me a good push. And what you don't want to do is get, you know, take it personally or get your ego involved so that if body of evidence, for example, doesn't get the same sorts of nominations um, or gets mixed reviews instead of, you know, stellar ones like Postmortem did, and it's getting good re- reviews, body of evidence mm-hmm. is, but um, you, you just say, well, you know, it's a different book, and I'm, you know, the third one's going to be treated differently than the first two, and you just have to focus on it that way and not keep saying, oh, my God, I did my best one first and now I'm in trouble. And I don't think I've done my, I don't think I've written my best one yet. I really don't. I have a feeling it's there somewhere and it may be the, a fourth one or a fifth one, who knows. Well, as Amy Tan told that woman who asked that, she said, I'm not dead yet. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not dead yet either. Thank you very much. <laughs> is Dr. Scarpetta in the third one as well? Oh, yes. Uh, the third one is, again, Scarpetta, the main character, and Marino is in it very strongly. And I also bring back Abby Turnbull, mm. who's the reporter that was in uh, Postmortem. Now, how do you keep... You, you've, you've got to... Do you have... A, a, like, a, like, like in Hollywood, they have it for a TV series. They have the Bible, you know, that tells new writers all about the whole background, whatever character's middle name is and where they grew up and, and went to school, what they did in previous episodes. Do you have to keep for yourself a little notebook somewhere to telling you what, what happened in the previous episodes? Uh, no, what I do is... And I do forget sometimes. Um, I will simply go back to that earlier book and look up that passage where I might talk about Dr. Scarpetta's ethnic roots, for example, her heritage, because I... Well, was it Ver- or what city did I say? You know, because you forget. And, and I'll, that's what I use for my reference. Um, now, But it's interesting, too, because I don't know everything about my characters. I had an interesting situation where I was being interviewed for a magazine story a couple weeks ago about body of evidence. And the reporter said, now, Benton Wesley, he's the FBI profiler in my books. She said, now, doesn't he have a degree in psychology? And I said, well, I said, I don't know. I'll have to ask him. And she said, well, I'd like him to have one. I said, well, that's fine. We can give him that. You know, so now Benton Wesley has a, a psychology degree, and uh, thanks to somebody else who doesn't even write my book. So I have to remember that. I'll have to keep that magazine story around since I've now given him a psychology degree. So, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how all that works. <laughs> but, you know, it also strikes me that your readers as a class are more demanding perhaps and more attentive to detail than any other readers. Oh, they are. If you get that is why I have to be impeccable in my research and in particularly the technical and medical descriptions because if you get something wrong uh, there will be a lot of hue and cry about it. I will take I will have people that go to all the trouble of you know tracking down tracking me down through my publisher writing me a letter that I might get a month later as it winds away to my my residence and you know because they'll have a question about something 
Is this an error, or or can you explain, you know, how this could be possible? Because I do this for a living, and I haven't figured out da-da-da. And as a rule, you know, so far I've been lucky. But, for example, in postmortem, this was a typo where I have Scarpetta carrying a Ruger, a Ruger 38 revolver. The, the copy editor changed it to a Luger. I guess you'd never heard of Ruger. So anyway, you know, that, that created quite a stink because Ruger, I mean, Luger does not make a revolver. And so that was like saying someone was drive, driving a Chevrolet Accord, you know. It was like, boy, this lady works in a medical examiner's office and she doesn't know this. So I had to have them correct that in the, in the other printings of the book. And I got a lot of comment about it. A lot of people, they get downright angry. How could you put that in there? That's not correct. So, yes, you are right. The, the crime novel audience or mystery audience is very demanding. So, and the uh, critics are very demanding also, oh, yeah. I think. After this short break how Patricia Cornwell learned what to leave out of her books. Now back to my 1991 conversation with Patricia Cornwell. You know, something else I've found, too, is the people who actually have a connection to this world that they write about, be they people who work in a medical examiner's office or cops or judges or lawyers, anybody who's personally involved somehow in the things that they base their novels on, always tell me that they have to tone down real life to make it believable as a novel. That's true. That's true. Uh, I would say that is absolutely on the mark where my books are concerned. When I describe an autopsy or a crime scene, but particularly the things that actually go on in the medical examiner's office, the, the, the state the bodies are in and what I see, what I feel, what I smell, I have toned that down dramatically in my books uh, compared to what you know, I really experience because some of it, there's just no place for it. It's, it's, it's so, some of it would be so graphic, you would almost call it pornographic in a sense, mm-hmm. or just grotesque, um, or it would certainly make people nauseated. And so I, I um, and some things you see are so bizarre that you, if you ever put them in, no, in a novel, nobody would believe you, like, like the circumstances of how somebody died or the strange irony of, a, of certain details pertaining to that death. Or even weird things like names. For example, in Virginia, the the physician who pronounces the inmates dead who are executed in the electric chair, his name is is Dr. Fry. Now, if I put that in a novel... Nobody believed it. Nobody that. would believe it, and I would be laughed right out of New York. You know, the critics would rake me over the coals for such a, a, a terrible thing as that. They would say, well, she's trying to be a little Dickensian, and it's not working. <laughs> so, you, yes, life is stranger than fiction. No question about it. So so the, the, the tightrope you walk, then, is you've got to come up with a plot that has enough little twists and turns to keep us guessing and keep saying, wow, wow, and turning the page. But you've also got to keep that balanced with the idea. You've got to make it believable. Right. The way I make it believable is it has to be believable to me. And I'm so rooted in reality with the research I do, the working for the medical examiner. And, you know, I was a volunteer police officer for three years and very familiar with that aspect of investigation. And also my uh, exposure to the FBI. I have a very good friend who's an FBI agent and I, you know, very much steeped in what they do in profiling. And that is sort of my database where I extract things from that kind of experience and weave them into the plot, like what I do with fibers in Body of Evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually talk to somebody who analyzes fibers for a living for the FBI right here in Washington mm-hmm. at the Washington office, and that's where I got a lot of the detail for this particular fiber that is found with this, you know, this the peculiar um, configuration at cross-section, which is, is uh, you know, a very bright 
clue where everybody's very puzzled over what does this mean and how could this possibly be connected to this case and this other case and so forth. So if it's believable to me and believable to the people I work around, then I feel pretty confident about using it. There's a there's like an alarm in your head when you start doing something and it's a little bit too off the wall and you say, no, uh, that's a little bit too much. I'm gonna, uh, it, maybe it could work that way. We, we all have experiences and I'm sure, Bill, you've had some of these that are almost like psychic in the sense that weird things happen, strange, like a light will flick on at a weird moment, and you say, whoo, you know, what was that? And th- these are examples of things in real life that oftentimes you can't use in your books because even though it may happen and you may have experienced something like that, you, you just no place for it in your fiction because it's too off the wall. And so I tend to restrict myself, and I don't use those <laughs> peculiar things that, that uh, sort of defy logic. <laughs> is, there, is there also a time, though, when you've got to rein yourself in and you say, hey, I'm putting too much jargon in here, I'm getting really technical, I'm, you know, your head is filled to the bursting point with, with this inside knowledge that you're dying to use, mm-hmm. but if you put too much of it in, it turns into an encyclopedia instead of a novel. I think I had more of a problem with that in the beginning, it was that golly gee, wide-eyed wonder. Um, this is I love all these gizmos. You know the this the technology and and the little bit of Tom Clancy gets in you, where you want to describe everything in painstaking detail. For example, in my early efforts, I would take you through an entire autopsy. Um, I mean, from beginning to end, from the minute that scalpel you know hits the skin to when they're suturing it up after the fact, and how much each organ weighed and. And that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, who cares? Um, it's much better to give the impression. And as you'll see in my in my books now, I don't go into that much detail. You get enough, so it's almost cinematic. It's like you see an image on the screen almost of of Scarpetta doing this autopsy and you know maybe lifting out the the, the chest, the bodies, uh, I mean the organs out of the chest cavity or mm-hmm. whatever. But mainly, you're only seeing what is pertinent to what she's looking for. I don't. That kind of detail, I have a very strong sense of when to stop because I start getting bored with it. And I think it's because it's more commonplace to me now. After six years in the medical examiner's office, I'm not as golly gee about about autopsies and the forensic science. It's more commonplace. And so I think I handle that with a better balance than I did in my early efforts. Um, I think that's always a sign or can be a sign of a new novelist or someone who's just finding their way when you read a description and it's too much. And you say, well, they're too impressed with that because it's new to them and they're telling the reader much, much more than he or she wants to know. And that readers don't have patience for that. They really don't want to know every little spot that's on the plaster and every little crack on the wall. And you really don't need to describe what somebody's, um, you know, black BMW looks like from A to Z because if you just say it's a black BMW, most people have seen one. They know what it looks like. You don't need to tell them. In fact, it's almost gotten to the point when you talk about how attentive your readers are. If somebody describes it in too much detail, then you know there's a reason why. That sometime 100 pages later, you're going to find out why they they said there was a you know, University of Virginia decal on the back of the windshield or something. Right. Uh, that that detail meant something. I, I try to do that, I think, in, in post-mortem and body of evidence. You, it, in retrospect, and a lot of people have said this to me, when you finish reading those books, you look back, and, you, and I've had people say, you know, it was so obvious. Why didn't I see it? Because even in post-mortem, the, the clues that actually are lead up to who this person is who's doing this, the, the serial killer, 
when you look back at it, you say, why didn't I pick up on that? It was little pieces dropped here and there throughout the entire book. This is, the key is to do it in a very matter-of-fact, commonplace way so they don't stand out like a sore thumb, so to speak. It's, it's very natural. And, this is the, and the reason I think I'm able to do that is it's the way it works in life. When you look at the history of an investigation, especially if you're on the inside and you know all the details of it, you will find that, that oftentimes the tracks were so clear from the beginning. And why didn't somebody suspect that? It's, it's oftentimes the most obvious situation you can imagine versus it being that complicated and esoteric. And so all of my plots are rooted usually in the commonplace and randomness. And that, of course, is what's so frightening, because we'd rather think it's a, a Dean Koontz or Stephen King-type monster out there who's very clever and supernatural. Uh, somehow that would make us feel a little more immune if we knew it wasn't as commonplace as the person who pumps gas for you twice a week in the morning, who has had these weird fantasies about you or something uh. like this. That is what's frightening. And that, unfortunately, is what happens, too. Patricia Cornwell will be 66 in June. She lives in Massachusetts. Her most recent case Carpetta mystery, called Autopsy, was published in 2021. And you can find easy Amazon links to some of Patricia Cornwell's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's also where you'll find my interviews with two other well-known female mystery writers, the great P.D. James. I think from early childhood I've been rather fascinated by death. I've always been aware of the fragility of life and how short it is. So I think if I were writing a so-called straight novel, I can't imagine that death wouldn't come into it somewhere. And one of America's favorites, Mary Higgins Clark. I think a suspense book should be like being on the roller coaster. You know you're going to get scared. You're paying to get scared. You watch that thing chug up and you see that deep, deep drop. And you hang on and yell, and then you break and you're into the station. And you had a great time. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on every major podcast platform. And thanks for listening. Now, next time on Now I've Heard Everything with Russia dominating the news the last month or so, I recalled an interview I did almost 27 years ago with a woman named Luba Brezhneva. If that name sounds familiar, it's because her uncle, Leonid Brezhnev, led the Soviet Union for 18 years. We talked in 1995. Probably it was the first step that helped me to be dissident and asked my uncle to let me go. Let me leave this country. I'm not happy here. I don't want to stay here. No, you have to stay here. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.